Welcome to the Brighter Side of Ed podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Richardson-Hassler, here to enlighten and brighten the classrooms in America through focused conversation on important topics in education. In each episode, I discuss problems we as teachers and parents are facing and what people are doing in their communities to fix it. What are the variables and how can we duplicate it to maximize student outcomes? In this episode, I focus on theory as a variable. How can theory affect positive change in education? In 2020, schools closed during the pandemic and the educational system made an enormous leap forward by using online learning to bridge the distance. However, the educational system was not prepared and it became painfully obvious as we slipped academically as a nation. Here to discuss theory and education is Dr. Michael Graham Moore. He first defined distance education in his theory of transactional distance in 1972 and then expanded on that in 1997. He was named one of the 128 most important, influential, innovative, and interesting thinkers on education of all time by the Routledge Encyclopedia of Educational Thinkers in 2016. Dr. Moore is internationally recognized for establishing the scholarly study of distance education and for pioneering the practice of teaching online. Welcome to the show, Dr. Moore. Thank you. Okay. Can you tell us about yourself and explain what is educational theory? Okay. Well, Lisa, about myself, uh, very briefly, I held academic positions in Kenya, East Africa, um, in England and Canada before I came to the College of Education at the Pennsylvania State University in 1986. At Penn State, I founded the American Center for Study of Distance Education, where we were experimenting with new forms of teaching online through the late 1980s and 1990s uh, into the new century. I also founded the first American research journal, the American Journal of Distance Education, and I'm still its editor, now beginning our 37th year of publication. I worked for a period as education specialist at the World Bank, and then with my own consulting firm, I traveled the world to advise on setting up distance education systems, uh, training trainers and teachers, and evaluating distance education programs. About theory, uh, in everyday speech, when people say, I have a theory, they usually mean they have a a speculation, a a hypothesis, a suggestion. But a scientific theory is not a suggestion. Scientific theory Uh, can be defined as a structured explanation of a set of facts. Now, I like to think of theory as being like a map. A map of a mountain, for example, shows what's known about the landscape and the contours and the rivers, etc. But importantly, it also reveals any areas that have not yet been mapped. So old maps used to mark such empty spaces as terra incognito, land unknown. So every theory, like the map, displays what's known. But importantly, it also reveals what is not known. And that's why research depends on theory. You can't add much to human knowledge except through scientific research. And research begins with spotting gaps in knowledge and then looking for data to fill the gap. As editor, I select for publication only those articles in which authors explain 
how their data relates to theory, that is, how it adds to what's already known. Unfortunately, a lot of people do go out and collect data without doing, without looking for those gaps. That data doesn't get reported um, if it doesn't add to what's already known. So that's roughly the idea. So what was <clears throat> happening in your life that led you to develop a new educational theory? Well, I stumbled upon a big gap in knowledge. In 1970, I began to study for a PhD in education at University of Wisconsin in Madison. My background was not that of the average student. I said I'd, I'd worked for the newly independent government in Kenya for seven years, and I learned that a very effective way of delivering educational programs to people in the African villages with very primitive roads was using radio. And I also learned to write correspondence courses for training government employees in the newly independent country. So when I began to read for my doctorate in Madison, Wisconsin, I could find no scientific research on that kind of teaching. All the research in education was framed in the assumption that teaching was activity. I'm quoting directly now from a, uh, from a document from the American Curriculum Society, uh, something of that nature. It's a direct quote, and it says, teaching was activity which takes place during schooling and within the classroom setting. Teaching is activity that takes place during schooling and within the classroom setting. Well, I'd spent the last seven years teaching that wasn't in a classroom or schooling. And so I set out to fill the gap in the theory by defining that other form of teaching and learning. And in 1972, I published a definition of distance education for the first time. I, I, I defined it as the family of instructional methods in which the teaching behaviors are executed apart from the learning behaviors so that communication between the learner and the teacher is facilitated by print, electronic, mechanical, or other devices. So should there be anyone interested, you can read the Journal of Higher Education back in its 1973, and you'll see all that laid out. So it was seeing the gap and going to work. It took two or three years to do it, but to fill that gap. So that's the, that's the story. And so what is the theory of transactional distance, and how is it important to education? Uh, first, I should explain that the theory wasn't just conjured out of thin air. It was deduced from data, from my analysis of hundreds of educational programs. I, I gathered together um, descriptions of programs delivered by communication technologies such as radio, television, the telephone, and then very early computer experiments. And I analyzed these to look for what I call the macro factors, the, 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 the broadest uh, uh, variables that would define the field. And I came up with three sets. And the first of these um, came from an analysis of the content of courses in study guides and programs. And I called that the program structure. 
The second set of uh, macro factors derived from analysis of interactions between teachers and learners was labeled as dialogue in the program. And the third, based on analysis of the behaviors of students in the programs, described the extent to which they participated in making decisions uh, normally reserved exclusively for teachers, decisions about what to learn, how to learn, how much to learn. And I called that dimension the learner's autonomy. And I presented a typology of educational programs that showed the whole range that were possible according to those uh, three dimensions. Now, the term transactional distance, that was first used in the 1980 Handbook of Adult Education. Uh, the concept of transaction comes from, from John Dewey. To quote the authors, the editors of that handbook, it connotes the interplay among the environment, the individuals, and the patterns of behaviors in a situation. So the transaction and distance education is the interplay of the behaviors of teachers and learners in environments in which they're in separate places and have to communicate through a technology. So it's that separation between learners and teachers that requires the, quote, special patterns of behavior in how content and teaching are organized, that is their structure, and special patterns of behavior in how teachers interact with learners, which is the dialogue. And in both creating the right structure and determining the right form of dialogue for any specific student, the aim is to build a bridge across what can be conceived as a psychological distance, which is the distance or the gap in what the student understands about a reality and the understanding of that same reality by the persons charged with helping the student in the development of his or her knowledge, because knowledge is not information. Information isn't knowledge. It's only the student that makes knowledge out of the information, which is structured and then um, processed in a dialogue with the student. So the theory is important to education as a foundation for research and as a change of perspective on curriculum and instruction, and perhaps most important, as the foundation for a more modern 21st century perspective on how to organize resources, human and financial, into a different kind of system from the 19th century school system that we've inherited and that we're into which we're now trying to fit 21st technology. That's a problem that we perhaps can discuss a bit later on. Yeah. Um, I was interested in our uh, previous conversation when you were talking about the, the satellites and listening for the sounds of heartbeats from the students at Berkeley. And so you were a pioneer at its very earliest moments um, with distance education. Can you talk about like what was it like to be on that, that cusp when you heard that? When still working in Africa and intending to leave, I, I'm a British citizen. I'd not been in the United States at that time, but meeting American visitors to to Kenya, I was told of a professor in the University Extension in Madison, Wisconsin, that knew of my work and was offering me the possibility of um, of working with him as a researcher. 
And I had my own private concept that uh, I should proceed into a doctoral degree, as I mentioned before. Uh, Charles Wedemeyer is really the um, visionary behind all that we do. When he was mentioned to me, I was told that he was um, a rather ex- uh, unusual, shall we say, person. Eccentric. <laughs> eccentric was the word I was trying, I was feeling for. Thank you. Yeah, Eccentric and unusual uh, person. Uh, he had crazy ideas. Uh, one of his ideas was that one day in the future, there would be satellites whizzing around the world and we would be able to connect teachers with students through satellites up in space. That's how crazy this man is. But if you still want to come and work with him, he's interested in having, <laughs> having you as his research assistant. Um, and uh, so, yes, I, I... You're like, came, that's a great idea. Yeah, let's do I it. came to the United <laughs> States. So within a few weeks of being there, um, well, immediately... Uh, I was in. Uh, I was driving with him down to the State Department, State Office, State Office Building in Madison, where he was leading a group that were attempting to set up what he called an open school for the state of Wisconsin. Uh, the idea being to pool all the resources of the state and um, develop a system that would be uh, that would support the regular schools and also. Uh, learning at home and uh, and continuing education using the range of technologies available at that time. So this is another story, but very very important part of our history. Um, and uh, he had also incidentally been the advisor to the British government on setting up the British Open University, which is by far the finest example of a distance education in the system, a distance education system in the world. Um, he had lived in uh, Great Britain for some time, um, and I think it was partly the British connection that made me of interest to him. So this is a long, long story, but to, to get to the immediate point of the question, soon after arriving in Madison, he had me visit with him over at, um, at, a, at a center that they had set up to um, look in, to, to develop uh, satellite communications, the engineering school, and um, they, they they developed an experiment to see if they could transmit an audio program from one part of the United States to the other. Well, the audio program they were testing was the heartbeat of a person in, I think it was in Pasadena. Um, it was in California anyway. And so I sat as a young researcher with my, with my boss and a group of engineers um, listening and listening and listening, and the engineers were pushing wires and pressing buttons and running around outside. And then eventually, they said, "Oh, got it! We got it! We got it!" Listen, and go boom, 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 boom. It was very exciting. They were excited because <laughs> they could hear the heartbeats that were coming from California up to the satellite and back down to Madison, Wisconsin. So, I mean, in terms of technology, that's how primitive <laughs> it was. The birth of of communication technology in education. I don't know how much, I'm not a specialist and I haven't looked into it, how much was going on in the broader field, but certainly in education, we were taking the very, very first steps. I should say in the educational technology, in the technology aspect, Wedemeyer had already thought through a lot of the pedagogical innovation that we're still talking about today. He had, in the 1960s, obtain a grant to 
develop an experiment that he called the Articulated Instructional Media Project. And in that, he tried out the hypothesis that if you take the um, process of teaching and break it down into its components, somewhat like Henry Ford took the construction of the automobile and broke it into its parts and then was able to uh, develop automobiles more more efficient. If you do that in education, could you uh, deliver uh, learning programs more efficiently uh, of at least as good a quality? And that worked. It ran for about three years uh, using a range of technologies. And it was that idea that was picked up by the British when they were wanting to start a new form of they, they, they called it at the time University of the Air. And they were thinking on about broadcasting radio and television. They pulled Wedemeyer in and he gave them this systems approach of breaking down process and then having each of the parts of teaching focused upon by an ex, by a specialist. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably come to that in our conversation because that's the basic model that we are slowly, slowly moving to. And the faster we move to it, the sooner we'll have better education uh, at better, uh, more favorable for the taxpayers, because our present system is so inefficient. And that system delivers high quality at lower prices. Um, so he had that idea back in the 60s. Then wow. I, I came in as his research assistant and, of course, picked up on all that um, and indeed, I did then go back at one point to Great Britain and worked at the British Open University. So I'm honest. I mean, I did all the all the stuff. I did all the work. You did. You you've been there from the from its uh, beginning, which is so exciting to see the development and the growth and the changes and how um, our mindset has has shifted um, to embrace distance education um, more regularly than than we have, you know, over the past uh, 20 years, especially where I, you've seen it more in the university level where it's um, it's been widely accepted and uh, high school and now it's coming, trickling down into elementary. And of course, um, you know, with the, with COVID and, and the school closures, we saw that that was something that we went to. So what are your thoughts then on when we reflect on the, the COVID school closures and the forced online classrooms, knowing what you know about its birth and and how you see it grow and the structures that when put into place um, can be done very effectively. And then we all had to go to that as a nation. What are your thoughts about that? With the pandemic, the, the whole world was forced to look for alternatives to the traditional classroom and the whole world. And I, I get articles yeah. from all over the world. You know, they, everywhere they attempted to provide some kind of distance education. Well, it was distance education of a kind because learners and teachers were in different places, so that fits the definition. But unfortunately, what we learned from this is what I could have told them, <laughs> is how <laughs> unprepared our teachers and our teaching systems were to properly engaged 21st century technology because most of the people who began to teach online had no knowledge about distance education theory or how to practice distance education. They simply went online and tried to teach the way they teach in the classroom. Understandably, what else 
what else could you do? Uh, our colleges still do not teach distance education, with very few exceptions. They'll teach how to use the computer, how to use Zoom, but they, they don't focus on those variables of, of design and dialogue and engagement of the learner according to their capacity for self-management or autonomy. Teachers, they have not been trained to facilitate the dialogue for good quality distance education. They've not been trained to structure their lessons for delivery by media. And because all their training and experience is fixated on the class, that is on groups of learners rather than individuals, if we go back go back to 100 years, I mean, correspondence teaching, that is teaching people at a distance through the mail, uh, it was always regarded as a tutorial. It's one-to-one. It's a tutorial approach. Um, uh, our traditional education is all a class approach. So the teacher approaches the students as, as, as a body, uh, as if they're all thinking in the same direction or all the stage, same stage of development and so on. Uh, which, of course, is ridiculous. Training is all fixated on the class, and so they were poorly prepared to engage the different approach. And so, unfortunately, it meant that it was not a good experience for many teachers and students. Um, most of them couldn't wait to get back to face-to-face teaching in the classroom. It was quite hurtful for me with my love and life in distance education because I'm hearing, I'm seeing people on television saying, you know, what? bad experience they're having and when they want to get back to the real thing and I know that the real thing isn't as good as what we could be doing but we're not doing it right and um, so it was a kind of bittersweet and still is I mean I'm getting articles every day with with COVID or uh, usually in the title and I should add that theory only received a small boost from academic research because most of, the, most of the education students and professors are also unprepared for distance education. So they frame their research questions in terms of classroom education. Right. And they, the question is typically, you know, how can online emulate the classroom? But that really is not going at it the right way. I, I recall I've mentioned this sometimes in, in class back in the – 1800s, when the automobile was first invented, they used to have a person walking in front of the automobile with a red flag so that the automobile wouldn't frighten the horses. And, you know, in a little bit, that's a little bit of where we are. We're, we're trying to um, put the automobile of the technology into the classroom, and we're trying not to frighten the horses of uh, – oh, I got lost in that metaphor, but you see. <laughs> No, Ryan, yes, you're, you're combining two things that don't, they're, they're, they're not the same. And the, so the, we can't be applying yeah. the same strategies and methods um, when they're not applicable. And I think uh, you're going to then have a disastrous outcome because you're not using what, what is intended for in that modality. And I think that we get lost in that sometimes because we're so fixated at, yeah. as a classroom teachers to be using distance education and the online platform for classroom as we were trained in our teacher education programs for face-to-face uh, theory and strategies and methodologies. And, and that's, not a, that's not truly applicable. Yeah. And so... Let, let me jump in and add, you know, I, I think I'm beginning to sound like a grouchy old man here, which I, <laughs> no. which I am. But I do think 
you know, I am hopeful. I, I'm really hopeful because this exposure, the fact that we're having this conversation, you know, it, it might not have happened before COVID. I mean, this exposure to using the question of how do we use the technology um, in our classrooms and, and more broadly, the fact that it's such a, so high on the agenda now um, is a really good thing. And you know, perhaps the majority of people will only slowly get there. You know, it's the old Rogers um, adoption diffusion uh, theory. You know, at first, only a few um, innovators will experiment and then more people will follow and then the majority will follow. And I do think we are in, and I hope we're in the early stages of really important innovation that that the the COVID brought people to look at the technology and education and say, how can we use it? Um, most of it was used not very well, used poorly. Um, but the fact that the question is being asked uh, has to be uh, a really um, encouraging phenomenon. Um, and I think more educators will, will um, study distance education, will look for the literature. There's not a lot of published textbooks, for example, um, but uh, I, I, I think we can be hopeful from that experience, even though the experience itself wasn't, um, wasn't all we would like it to have been. Well, I think that that's true. And so now if a teacher is interested in, uh, well, does not have a background in distance education, but learns the theory based on on what they read, and they try to apply that theory of transactional distance um, to their online class that they have now, are you hopeful that knowing those three clusters of dialogue structure and learner autonomy, and those facets will help improve their online course, if, if nothing else, if that's all that they know? I, um, are you hopeful that the knowledge of, of theory will, will be helpful? I, I pause because I don't, I don't think there isn't a direct one-to-one connection relationship between theory and practice. I would expect that outcome, improved outcomes would follow from the self-awareness perhaps from the awareness that the structure requires attention and the nature of the dialogue and the management of the student Mm self-management i'm fumbling here because i'm starting to think about how we treat our own health condition our own health yes the Mm -hmm. theory says that i really should have gone to the treadmill this morning (laughs) so knowing that Maybe tomorrow I actually will go. There must be um, a space there between the awareness and the applications. Probably the gap needs to be filled by training, by, oh, by fairly sure. close close study and training. It won't be a short-term and direct relationship. Yeah. Awareness would lead to some improvement, I expect. Oh. 
Yeah, I think reading about the theory and understanding it, knowing it's out there. I think right now a lot of teachers have not been trained in distance educational theory. And so knowing that there are theories that can be applied to um, online classes could be a helpful resource for them to know that there are different ways to um, to organize and to use those methods or strategies to be able to help improve student engagement and to um, with organization of their classroom even uh, just as a resource to be able to go to to say, oh, okay, there is some structure and some organization to how this can be done better um, instead of what we were handed, which was, you know, here is a platform and now go teach. And now you have these these students and there was no um, there's no background knowledge. And so I think that, you know, having a little bit of a roadmap is a helpful guide for teachers and that they were looking for something as a help. And now we have blended classrooms, hybrid classrooms, high flex, this new word I've heard, I've learned over the last couple of weeks, which are all of these mixtures of online and face-to-face where a teacher is, is being, um, in my uh, view, torn between two different places, um, whether it's um, on the online platform or it's in the face-to-face classroom. And that could be very challenging, but then knowing the theory can be helpful when you know how to structure, um, how to organize the content and how to deliver it. Um, that's a very big challenge that that teachers were facing um, and could be still to this day. I know a lot of them have gone to that platform and definitely over the last two years, um, which is something that I was doing with second grade. And um, while it was um, a challenge, it I did see its benefits. And I know that for me, using uh, your theory of transactional distance um, was extremely helpful to me. And, and I was able to pass that on to my colleagues as a resource for them to understand how we should be um, organizing and developing our platform and our content better for student engagement and for better student outcomes. So that was that was helpful for me. But there are teachers that are teaching online right now that may possibly not have any educational uh, background for distance education. Do you have any advice for those teachers who are being um, put in the position where they um, are supposed to be teaching online, but they do not have a distance education background? Um, Is there any advice that you could give them? Yes, I'll take a shot at it, Lisa. Um, Before we finish, I... I hope we'll get a chance to address my wish to advocate for change uh, in the system. I, I often say, and I'll say here, uh, the problems we're facing are not to do with technology. A lot of people write articles and send me the, the, the question they address begin is, is to do with the application of a technology, but technology is not the challenge it's an easy challenge, relatively easy challenge to deal with. Not even pedagogy, because uh, through our conversation, we're, we're indicating that we, we, we have a pedagogy of distance education. We know how to do it. Our, our bigger problem is the organization of our institutions, which don't really allow for optimum use or optimum practice of the pedagogy using the technologies we have. And ultimately, the problem is a policy or political problem 
because our organizations aren't resourced uh, in order to use the pedagogy that we know using the technologies we have. So that's, um, that, that is uh, my perspective. Before I address the person for whom I have such sympathy, who is within this system, who's told, go and teach online, um, she or he does the best they can. And when I was asked this the other day, I came up with what I called some crib notes um, for teaching. Um, I think the title was, uh, I put it in the American Journal as an editorial, uh, the COVID crisis crib notes for teaching online. So in answer to your question, within the system we've got, which is not the system I want to see in the future, but in the system we've got, I would say as follows. Firstly, um, in the classroom, it's effective very often to rely on spontaneity and improvisation, but this is very risky online. I think the idea of the structure is really important. Um, uh, A successful online course depends on having a solid structure. And what that means is, and I've been hammering away at this with as a consultant around the world for years, and it's it's like telling people to eat their oatmeal. You know, <laughs> it's objectives, learning objectives. I'm only talking about what teachers all know, but you know, you've got to practice good hygiene. You've got <laughs> to have your your lesson based on uh, knowing, specifying clearly what are the outcomes that are expected from that lesson. Uh, uh, the beginning, uh, and, uh, and I think time is time management is very, very important. Uh, you have to plan the lesson as, uh, as a series of chunks of time. Uh, for most students, a sensible chunk of time is about 15 minutes or so, but you have your own experience on that. But the lesson has to be planned in chunks of time and the beginning of each chunk of time, you have to know what is expected by the end of that. And with more mature students, certainly you can tell the students what they should be able to do at the end of that period. These are the learning objectives. You all know it. If you haven't, if you don't know Benjamin Bloom's taxonomy you know, back from the fifties or sixties, you absolutely should know it. Many university professors don't because university professors, of course, don't know how to teach. They've not been trained to teach. Um, but uh, each objective should have a specific outcome and it will tell you if the objective is achieved. Um, and then resources have to be selected according to, um, you know, to achieve the objectives. There'll be recorded materials or your own presentation. Um, recorded materials. Time has to be spent on curating the video and audio resources, uh, the online documents that, that are going to be used, so that every resource contributes directly to the achievement of the learning objectives. But as I'm talking, the idea of the structure becomes really important. Through the technology, there isn't room for loose meandering and wandering. It's really got to be tightly programmed, if you like. Saying that reminds me the metaphor, the comparison. When, when, the, when the film camera was first introduced, they, uh, they took the camera 
um, you know, before before modern cinema. They took the camera into the theater and they filmed the action on the stage until very quickly, I think, they realized that what you see through the camera is a very different experience from what you experience when you're sitting in the live theater. The movie is very, very, very tightly structured and constructed and structured, uh, quite different from the from the experience on the stage. So then, you know, so I, I say there's no place in the lesson for social or aimless chat. That's not to say there cannot be a dialogue between the students, but it's a designed dialogue. It's dialogue that follows the question, the question which is derived from the objective, what is expected in that piece of in that piece of teaching. So tasks can be set for the students to reach an objective through discussion or through team projects, but not no aimless chat. You know, especially if it's in a Zoom-like environment. People will just get lost and discouraged. And then finally, there has to be the evaluation task that wraps up each chunk of lesson time. Uh, it can be five minutes of a 15-minute chunk or whatever. I mean, I, I worked in Brazil with a project with 27,000 teachers, training 27,000 teachers. <clears throat> and wow. I insisted that the, you know, the core of the whole project had to be the focus on the evaluation. These people were in villages all over that huge country, and teachers in practicing in schools, in, in service, um, on-the-job training. And I used to say that we should be able to tell if in any one school the teachers were not achieving the learning objectives. We should be able to tell if in any one state they were not achieving the objectives, if in one school they're not achieving the objectives, then we intervene and, and, and do some extra training in that school. But if across the whole system people are not achieving one of the objectives, then we have to change the objective or change the technology we're using for communicating on that objective. But you have to have very um, effective evaluation in order to know if your objective is wrong and needs changing or if the technology you're using is wrong and needs and needs changing, um, or possibly the evaluation criteria need need changing. Um, so you know, th these are I think every school teacher, uh, unfortunately not every university teacher, uh, every school teacher who's been through a teacher training um, program probably knows the importance of the learning objectives, the selection of the of the technologies and the procedures to match up each learning objective and the importance of the evaluation. <clears throat> but it's that simple uh, structure that will determine the, the, uh, the program that's more successful or less successful. Now, in fact, ultimately, I think every teacher should have specialist support in each of those activities, should have specialist support in designing Select, in designing objectives, specialist support in uh, in the communication through the range of audio and video technologies, and specialist support in the evaluation process. It's too much to ask the one person to do all that uh, optimally um, alone, and the person in the next room doing the same thing alone, and the person in the next room doing the same thing alone. Right, and specialist support would allow the continuity between those different, what feels like um, 
isolated islands where every teacher is on its own little island and, and you're in a silo kind of effect where you don't really know what's going on in your neighbor's classroom. Um, and so you're going to continue to perpetuate what you believe is is correct or good strategy. And so having someone that can see all of them uh, will be able to allow that continuity and, and higher um, excellence. So I think that that's, that's a good idea to have those specialists. All right. Excellent. Um, okay. So, well, thank you for that. That was, that was fascinating and definitely wonderful advice. It goes back to your three clusters. Theory affects positive change in education because it uses scholarly study and research to describe what we know works. The theory of transactional distance is not new, only the full and sudden emergence of America's Classrooms Online in 2020. As a nation, we took a huge leap forward teaching from online platforms. And while it felt painful because the educational system was not prepared, we still learned a lot and advanced. Now educational leaders and politicians need to keep the momentum moving forward. COVID was the wake-up call to America that the way we are preparing teachers is outdated. So here is the call to action. Teachers and parents, advocate for distance education teacher training through your state and district. Online education, whether it's pure, blended, hybrid, or high flex, is growing, and we need the best education for our children. This is only possible through applying sound theories to teaching methods. Thank you, Dr. Moore, for joining me today to talk about the importance of theory in education and its impact on student outcomes. If you have a story about what's working in your schools that you would like to share, you can email me at drlisarichardsonhassler at gmail.com or visit my website at www.drlisarhassler.com and send me a message. It is the mission of this podcast to shine light on the good in education so that it spreads, affecting positive change in schools. So let's keep working together to find solutions that focus on our students' success. 